This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Rising sea levels are forcing us to reconsider how we think about our coastlines. We should be looking at the immediate shoreline with the understanding that we're going to get to use it for a limited period of time. Because a changing coastline means changing human behavior. When you go down to the community level and say, okay, well, when this king tide hits, how will that impact them? Commute to work, to school. I think putting it in those terms makes people respond more. So cities around the globe need to prepare for a shoreline that's going to move inland. We don't have to know when it's going to happen, and we accept that with mudslides, avalanches, earthquakes, and tsunamis. Yet we still design for them. Cities, sea level rise, and coastlines on the move. Up next on Climate One. How will rising seas affect the 40% of the world's population who live within an hour's drive of the ocean? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Devin Strolovich. Climate One Conversations, with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. Since the dawn of human civilization, the coastline has basically been in the same place, with tides ebbing and flowing in predictable ranges. Recently, that started to change, and in the 20th century, seas rose seven inches, driven by humans burning fossil fuels that release heat-trapping gases, which in turn cause glaciers to melt and oceans to warm and expand. That rate may seem slow, but it has already doubled in this century, and scientists say it will probably accelerate further, threatening every major coastal city from New York to Shanghai and Rio de Janeiro. To address the planning and design challenges posed by rising seas, Greg is joined by three guests. John Englander is author of High Tide on Main Street, Rising Sea Level, and the Coming Coastal Crisis. Kieran Jane is Chief Operating Officer of the startup Neighborly and former Chief Resilience Officer of the City of Oakland, California. And Will Travis is former Executive Director of the Bay Conservation and Development Commission, the California State Agency responsible for land all along San Francisco Bay. Here's our conversation about cities, sea level rise, and coastlines on the move. John Englander, uh, you also were up in the Arctic in 2007 in, in Greenland. So tell us that story. Who were you with and how that set you on that the path to also be a, you know, an alarmist about sea level rise? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, August 19, uh, 2007 was my uh, uh, first trip to Greenland, as you say. And I was there with some wealthy yacht owners. I was running a group called International Sea Keepers. And uh, we were going to go see the big Jakobshavn Glacier, one of the... the largest glaciers in the world the next day, and it's the one that supposedly spawned the iceberg that sank the Titanic, so kind of an interesting footnote. And I was trying to think about how to get these people who were interested but a little skeptical about climate change to be focused on it, and it just suddenly hit me. In college, I had studied ancient sea levels, how with the ice ages, sea level moved up and down three or 400 feet regularly. And I suddenly realized that it was simple, that if the oceans are warmer, which they are, the ice will melt, on Greenland and Antarctica primarily, the sea will rise, and if the sea's taller, that the shoreline will try and move inland. And I just, it suddenly occurred to me that, that there was a fairly simple case to be made without the jargon, without the technical science, and I got the idea to write that book, right then and there, it happened all within a minute. 
So that matters to yacht owners because their docks may, may move, I guess. Yeah. Um, I'm going to talk uh, here from Ronaldo uh, Borges, who's an architect in, in Miami. He is on the city's sea level rise committee and want to hear his thoughts on the potential solutions for South Florida's water problems. South Florida, of course, is, is looked at as the epicenter of the concern because we're very uh, low and, and we start to see the sunny day flooding during the king tides where we really see the water flowing into the, certain parts of the city uh, and people sort of driving through salty water without at times knowing that it's actually salty water. I get invited to talk to developers. I just spoke to 400 developers about resiliency. A lot of them already have sustainability features in their buildings, like their buildings are greener, they consume less energy and, and consume less water, but then how they may be affected by the impact of climate change. We're really not thinking through how uh, our buildings will be affected by water in the long term um, and perhaps even in the short term. So we need to look at the water flowing through our communities in a different way and the way that we navigate and move around our communities may change. You know, there, there may be more uh, amphibious vehicles that could navigate both in dry conditions and wet conditions. If a ground floor of a building gets abandoned, is the second floor designed so that it could become the first floor? I don't think that there is one single solution. I mean, South Florida continues to grow. The growth is going to be pretty constant for now. Architects in general are optimist about community, about quality of life, about urbanism and the things that we could design into. So I do think that there is a future beyond, you know, where we may see doom and gloom and, and, and sort of South Florida being taken over by the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, I sort of see a, a future in water world where it's still attractive to live on the coast. That's Miami architect Ronaldo Borges. Uh, so, John Englander, you live in South Florida. There's a lot in there. He's sort of saying we're prepared, but we're not. And I'm optimistic, but, you know, but things are going to change dramatically. <laughs> yeah, I live in South Florida, about an hour north of Miami. I'm down there a lot. I've encountered Ronaldo many times. In fact, I'm working with architects is, is really a, an important channel, I think. And uh, he's very knowledgeable and very concerned. And it's hard to get the clients and the city and the building codes to respond to a, what's a clear and present danger, frankly. But I was in Jacksonville a few weeks ago. People don't even think of Jacksonville up in the north end of the state. Uh, they were flooded during Hurricane Irma. There's hotels that are still closed. Um, Tampa Bay was, was hit, Naples. So, you know, Florida is a, a big state, and uh, there are lots of different points of vulnerability, the Keys as well. Kieran Jane, you were a chief resilience officer of, of Oakland and part of a program uh, funded by some philanthropists to have these new offices in city halls around the country. So tell us about that program and how it looks, what's happening with other cities that are looking at these, all these integrated resilience issues that are coming forward. Sure. Um, so this is a program funded by the Rockefeller Foundation called 100 Resilient Cities. And um, the idea is to seed 100 chief resilience officers in cities around the world. Um, the realization being that the way that our government structures have been set up over the last 50 years um, are not equipped to handle the challenges for the next 50 years, particularly uh, pertaining to, to climate change and some other um, kind of pressing issues around um, housing affordability, economic insecurity. So there's not a one-size-fits-all kind of description for a chief resilience officer, but in Oakland, you know, our baseline work was really around this, um, this fact of of you can be in Oakland, live one mile away from another Oaklander, be twice as likely to be unemployed, and live 15 years less. 
and it changes depending on race. And then if you look at these vulnerable communities and you look at the sea level rise maps, the liquefaction maps, the flooding maps, they overlay. And so our goal really was to focus on how can we um, make our people, our communities more resilient so that when um, these slow burning crises like sea level rise or acute things like earthquakes happen, how can our community be better prepared? So, Will Travis, give us the, there's some options. We think about sea, sea level rise. You worked about uh, the city as a planner, thinking about shaping the, the life and character of cities. What are the options of sort of defend, retreat, et cetera? Well, th those are the two options, defend, retreat. Uh, what we're looking at is a new option, which is resilience. And I think the important thing to understand and why this is all so difficult is that uh, as you pointed out in your introduction for the history of civilized human beings, we've lived in a period of relative calm so far as our climate is concerned. So without any great amount of ice melting or water freezing, the shoreline didn't go up or down, so the location of the shoreline didn't move laterally. So we came to learn that the shoreline is where the shoreline always was. And we therefore believe that the shoreline will always be where it is because that's where it's always been. And we've crafted a whole series of laws and rules and regulations that say, on this side of the shoreline, here are the rules. And on this side of the shoreline, here are a different set of rules. Now, as that shoreline begins to move, we're trying to do things that are innovative and that are creating resilience. But in some cases, the laws make it illegal. And the reason for that is the vast bulk of the body of law that we rely on were written before anybody was thinking about climate change. So the fact that they, the laws don't respond to climate change, I think it's not surprising. It would be a miracle if they did. So what we're trying to do now is find those innovative design solutions. I like to say to every difficult public policy problem, there's a clever design solution. And once we get enough of those clever design solutions, then use those as examples to go change the laws so we can make it possible to build those things. John Englander, for people to design the cities of the future that can, can adapt to these increasing storms, sea level rise, et cetera, they have a basic question, which is how fast and how high? And scientists have a difficult time answering that question. Tell us the range of the science there. You write about that somewhat. You're not a scientist, but you write about it in your book. Well, I distinguish myself from the, those doing the kind of fundamental granular research. I, I'm an oceanographer, but, but I explain what I, what I try and do is translate the science without jargon and using the metaphors and examples that a wider audience can understand. And sea level is, a, is a, the ideal example or problem, in effect, because we can't be too specific about sea level, and that surprises people. But the, in San Francisco, which everybody knows about, and we happen to be filming this here in San Francisco, we're recording it, we know there's gonna be another earthquake, just like there was a century ago. We don't know when, we don't know where and what magnitude, but there will be another earthquake. Well, the collapse of Antarctica and Greenland is about the same. They're ice sheets that are a mile tall on average, and together, they're the size of North America. Imagine that covered by ice over 6,000 feet tall on average. We can't predict exactly how that's gonna melt. So the scientists try to, and they say if the glaciers do this and Greenland does that and thermal expansion of seawater does that, we add all that up and so we get to somewhere between 20 and 30 inches. The problem is there's a big uncertainty. 
just like when the next avalanche will happen up in the, the Alps or something like that. We can't predict those things. So science tends to say what they know will happen with a high probability. With sea level, that really fools us because the truth is we can get five or 10 feet of sea level rise this century, which is stunning. Most of the estimates talk about two or three feet, but they kind of leave out Antarctica because you can't quantify it any more than you can quantify the next avalanche or mudslide on Pacific Highway you know, uh, in Big Sur or something like that, which happens unpredictably. We don't think about it like that. And the scientists don't explain that very well because they're trying to get the granular information about what they know for sure. But the, the fact is that sea levels moved up and down three or 400 feet every 100,000 years with the ice ages. We didn't see that. So now we're left with this real conundrum. We have to design cities like, the Embark like San Francisco with the Embarcadero or Miami or Boston or uh, Jacksonville, Florida or Seattle or Vancouver, pick any coastal city in the world, Copenhagen, Shanghai, Every, most big cities are on the coast or on tidal rivers. And we have to design them for storms, king tides, heavy rainfall, runoff, and then slowly rising sea level. Now in the next 20 years, I don't think we can get more than a foot, even in the worst case, but that would be a problem. The problem is those curves start spreading out with time because of the melting of Antarctica and Greenland, where you've been. And the truth is we're somewhere between two feet and 12 feet. How do you design for that? How do you build for that? Do you have jack-up buildings? Do you put them on skids and drag them up pillows Travis talked about? <laughs> do you put things on wheels? Everything's gonna be on floats. We have to figure that out, but we don't have a choice. We really have to do this. Karen Jane, Oakland is one of the biggest ports in the, in the country. You know, think about that. You know, two feet is, is sort of the, the cautious case. Is Oakland and the other ports uh, ready for two feet? You know, it's interesting. You talk about there are these known unknowns right. and how are we um, now pushing ourselves to rethink governance structures, to rethink finance in a way that can help us prepare for these types of events. Um, so I'd like to think that, you know, right now with these government entities, everybody's thinking about what are we going to do, right? So you might have um, at the port, you know, the logistics center being built um, higher up, but then it, the communities around say, well, well what about us, you know, the, your resources to be able to do that. What does it mean for for more vulnerable homes? So I think it's a it's a question that we have to look at. You know, community wide, we like to say it's, it's we don't know political boundaries, right? These natural hazards don't have political boundaries. Yet our regional planning mechanisms, whether it's um, you know capital planning and budgeting, happen within a political jurisdiction. So we really need to think about how do we answer this regional governance issue with challenges like climate change. I want to rise up, rise in night and day. All the gold and silver I've been storing away. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about cities, sea level rise, and high water everywhere. You can subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org. Greg Dalton will continue his conversation in just a moment. I want We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about sea level rise and sustainable development with John Englander, author of High Tide on Main Street, Rising Sea Level and the Coming Coastal Crisis. Kieran Jane, Chief Operating Officer of the startup Neighborly. And Will Travis, former Executive Director of the Bay Conservation and Development Commission. Here's your host, Greg Dalton. 
Well, Travis, it's been about five or six years since uh, Superstorm Sandy, you know, uh, closed the New York Stock Exchange for three days and devastated lower Manhattan. Remember that just dark lower Manhattan? What did we learn from that time? You know, people knew that something like Sandy was possible. Many people just thought they had another decade or two before it happened. It came faster and more furious than many expected. Unfortunately, what we've learned is that the human spirit is such that they believe that'll never happen again. <laughs> and uh, it is surprising how many people are now moving back to the Jersey Shore. They're buying out the poor people who suffered the losses, who didn't get nearly full recovery from their insurance. And uh, the folks who've always wanted to have a house at the beach can now afford to do so. It is unfortunate, but we tend as human beings to... We have to experience this ourselves. It's, I have a daughter, and I remember going through this exercise. Don't touch the stove. It's hot. Don't touch the stove. It's hot. The stove is hot. Daddy, I burnt my finger. And I'm afraid that we're going to, as a species, have to go through this terrible process of finding out that, yes, the scientists said the water was coming up, and yes, it has come up, and yes, it has wiped out my house, and we'll have to do it again and again before we really respond to it. John Englander, the FEMA maps, are, uh, most of the country is mapped, not all of it, uh, and, and when FEMA comes up with a new map and says, oh, you're in a flood zone, people get upset because they're forced to buy flood insurance because their bank will require that, and then politicians sometimes go to FEMA and say, hey, you know, can you just let this little town out that happened in St. Augustine, Florida, right, where some politicians said, hey, get us, you know, we're, we don't need to be in those maps, so people don't have to buy insurance. Then a flood comes, and people say, oh my God, we have no insurance. And then they go to the politicians and say, we need that bailout. Well, tell yeah. us about that cycle. Sure, the, uh, the National Flood Insurance Program, as many people know, is badly broken. It's $25 billion upside down, or underwater, as they say in insurance. Um, it, more debts than uh, assets. And uh, it gets worse. And, and I think uh, the, the obvious lesson of letting politicians uh, or Congress uh, determine the rules for a national flood insurance program that's going to basically be a monopoly, you know, what could go wrong? You know, I mean, <laughs> uh, uh, and um, we've seen that. And they keep tweaking the rules to make homeowners happy voters. And uh, we find ways to get exemptions from the rule because you're one inch over the line and you really shouldn't have to pay that $2,500 of insurance that if you were just on the other side of the line, you wouldn't have to pay. And so there's companies now that help you get your flood rates reduced. And um, it's crazy. It should be privatized. It is going to be up for renewal for another five years. Uh, but the whole system needs to be rethought because it's based upon archaic maps and uh, with lines, and if you're on this side of the line, you don't need flood insurance, and if you're one inch over the line, you need flood insurance, and it may be thousands of dollars. That's crazy. But also, people have a disincentive. In Texas, not many of the people in the path of Hurricane Harvey had flood insurance, and we stopped to think about, well, FEMA's gonna come and fix things whether they had flood insurance or not. Mm -hmm. So another part of the Department of Homeland Security actually almost undermines the normal reason to have flood insurance because it's expensive, and even then it's subsidized. So the truth is we've really got to rethink the National Flood Insurance Program. It's got to treat sea level differently than um, storms and the other kinds of flooding because those are events. 
Actually, the place Trav and I first met in Florida six years ago, we were at a conference about sea level in Boca Raton, where I happen to live. And I think one of the points that kind of brought us together was saying that sea level is not an event. Storms events, tides are events, king tides, heavy rainfall events, flash floods, those are all events, but the water recedes and you can rebuild. Sea level rise is like filling the bucket drip by drip, but it won't go down for a thousand years. And once I think we talked about this, that, that the events are layered on top of sea level rise. We just assume sea level wouldn't change much. Mm -hmm. So we have to, our terminology is not even right. Is this affecting property prices yet? There's indications that it is. Uh, nationwide property prices have been up pretty steadily in the last few years, and coastal properties aren't going up at the same rate. And there's a theory that the increased flooding, and it's all over the country, is starting to sink into people that... Um, you know, maybe this isn't a permanent piece of real estate. Kieran Jane, we've been talking a lot about uh, government solutions to rising seas here at Climate One. Uh, let's talk about you left government to go into the private sector because you think that there's a role for uh, entrepreneurship and, and financing to help solve this problem. Tell us that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think my, my time as chief resilience officer made me really appreciate uh, just how fast we need to move, um, that this is definitely... Um, a, even though it's a slow burning crisis, as we say, um, it is moving faster than the rate of bureaucracy and government. And so what, how can we <laughs> think about um, more innovative solutions? And that's really what brought me to Neighborly, which is um, a public finance technology platform that has built an end-to-end -end, uh, digital platform for municipal bond originations um, and connects them to investors. And the idea is, is you know, we say the, that public finance is a 3.8 trillion dollar market, yet we have two trillion dollars of unmet infrastructure needs in the US. Um, and it is a corner of the capital markets that really hasn't benefited from the transparency and efficiency that other parts of the capital markets have benefited from. And so you have that coupled with this idea that we need to move more quickly, we need to design um, more creatively for this, this future that we are preparing for, and so how can we finance it? We know that the technologies and designs are there. Um, we know that the governance structures might need to be rethought of, but then the last piece is really thinking about the finance and how do we actually make these um, projects come alive. And if uh, someone is listening to this and they want to invest in, in green bonds, those sorts of things, wh where can investors go today? And I mean, uh, green bonds, greens infrastructure, yes. are those accessible to retail investors? So it depends. Um, I think, you know, there is a market for retail and institutional investors when it comes to green bonds. Um, we have seen the market grow year over year by quite a big percentage. Um, there's obviously a desire by investors, but also by these public agencies who really are saying, okay, how can we be um, better stewards of the environment? And so you have you know, the Climate Bonds Initiative. So the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission actually just issued the first CBI green bond last year. Um, and the East Bay Municipal Utility District uh, did a similar uh, issuance around green bonds. And I think that for um, not just the cities, but for the investors, this presents a really great opportunity to put your values where your investments are. 
If you're just joining us, we're talking about rising seas at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Our guests are Karen Jane from Neighborly, John Englander, author of High Tide on Main Street, and Will Travis, a former California state official and sea expert. We're going to go to our lightning round. I'm going to mention a person, place, or thing, and you're going to tell me first thing that pops into your head without any regard for how politically correct it is or what <laughs> anyone will think about it. Uh, so John Englander, Florida Governor Rick Scott. Uh, denier. John Englander, Miami Mayor Tomas Regalado. Um, proactive and, and will be remembered as somebody putting forth that, that green bond issue. So, uh, you know, a step in the right direction. Karen Jane, the bond rating company Moody's. I was about to say dinosaur. Um, oh. <laughs> <But> financial. You <laughs> actually yeah. did. I, I did. heard her say that. I did say that. Uh, uh, you look, I think, well. <laughs> Dinosaur, we got it. We got it. Uh, we got it. Sorry. Uh, it takes me more than one word. <laughs> Will, Will Travis, uh, Facebook's corporate headquarters on the edge of San Francisco Bay. Great place to surf. <laughs> uh, true or false? Uh, <laughs> what a segue. True or false, Will Travis, rising seas will create some epic sets of radical waves for California surfers. True. John Englander, true or false, some people on Wall Street will make money when the risks of rising seas get priced into coastal property. Yes. Kieran Jane, true or false, the Oakland Athletics baseball team made a smart move when they moved the proposed new waterfront stadium to a new location away from San Francisco Bay. No comment. <laughs> oh, no, come on. Can't wimp out. Maybe this is easier for Kieran Jane, since she used to work for the mayor of Oakland. We'll give you a San Francisco question. Um, true or false, Kieran Jane, the Golden State Warriors' new waterfront arena one day will be a good place to play water polo. <laughs> true. <laughs> easier for Oakland to punch San Francisco. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Will Travis, your, true or false, your former agency, the Bay Conservation and Development Commission, tried to hold property developers more accountable for building in flood zones, and the powerful industry beat back that effort. That is false. True or false, Will Travis, not being a scientist is an advantage. It's, oh, absolutely. <laughs> you can, uh, true or false, John Englander, President Trump's Mar-a-Lago Resort could be threatened by rising seas. Yes, eventually, sure. Final one for Kieran Jane, true or false, surging seas will cause coastal elites to find new appreciation for flyover country. True. <laughs> Let's uh, give them a round for getting through that. John Englander, let's ask about the, the politics of climate in Florida. Lots of deniers there, and yet people who live outside the state look at Florida and say, wait, you're on the front lines, you're feeling it, and yet there are deniers elected statewide. So, and Carlos Cubello, who represents South Florida, is a leader in this uh, Noah's Ark caucus in Congress where there's now 20 or 30 members of Republicans and Democrats who on the record saying we got to do something. So tell us about the politics of climate in Florida. Yeah, and I th it's a great segue and opening because I think climate is almost too broad a term. I mean, it's, it's not, sometimes nice to have inclusive terms, but the truth is climate to me is at least three different issues. There's the energy part. How do we reduce greenhouse gases and slow the warming? And that's entirely valid in everything from solar energy and electric cars and conservation and LEED certified buildings and all of that. Everything to reduce energy 
and carbon in the atmosphere, which will slow the warning. Very valid. There's broad effects like with higher temperature, more fires out west here, um, different uh, temperature, weather patterns from, from changing from a warmer planet. Uh, really abstract and kind of moving target, but lots of different issues. And then there's sea level rise, which is really simple because the ice on Antarctica and Greenland is going to melt and has to raise sea level. And so it's really unambiguous and it gets to people's feelings about place and communities and, and risk and investment. So I'd like to separate the, even though climate one is, is one issue and it's a huge issue, it sometimes helps to think of that. Sea level gets around the concerns about the energy part. You know, a lot of the resistance to look at the climate issue is because you're going to take away our coal supply or you're going to make, you know, our, our tar sands in Canada or things like that. You're going to tell me how to make our energy and you're going to affect reserves in the ground. So a lot of the sensitivity has to do with that energy part, which is important. Sea level and the flooding, which is happening in coastal communities from Marin to Miami and from Boston to Bangladesh, that gets around that. And I've noticed that even conservatives and people um, who might be politically, uh, you know, you might think they could be categorized, they're getting concerned about sea level rise. They may not want to have the government telling them energy policy, but sea level rise and flooding is getting their attention. So that's good. All politics is local. Uh, yeah, and it's, yeah, so we can talk about the solutions and impacts, but we don't want to talk about the causes. Um, John Englander, I read an article in Scientific American that talked about how Jim Crow restrictions in Florida uh, basically contained African-Americans to some higher ground that was further away from the desirable waterfront property. So it was like, you people can live up on the hill. And now that hill property is suddenly desirable. And there are people worried about gentrification and, and kind of speculation in traditionally African-American uh, neighborhoods in Miami. And this gets to sort of you know, the displacement, because if you think about it, a lot of wealthy people live by the water because that's nice. And now they're figuring out, well, it may not be so good to live here. Let's go uphill and push those, you know, let those people go live down by the water. Have you countered that at all? Yeah, but it's not quite as simple as we'd like to think. You, you tend to think that the wealthy have those houses on the waterfront. Well, that's not a rule, okay? And uh, some of them are high up on the water, like 20 or 30 feet. There's a lot of low-lying land. From California, if you look at where the uh, trailer parks, basically, the RV homes and the mobile home communities, 50 years ago, those places were vulnerable and it wasn't smart to build right on the coast. And actually, a lot of poorer communities, white and black and, and different minorities, are in those densely packed trailer parks, in effect, from Southern California to Florida. And uh, so it defies what we think, and there's a lot of voters there. Um, the wealthy people tend to have better designed houses and maybe built up on pilings and things like that, and they may have influence but so we, we have to break down some of those stereotypes, I think. So it's not true. Fair enough. That was an overgeneralization about waterfront because there are there is East Palo Alto, very poor area along right. the coast. And then there's other places, Belvedere, right. where there's 30 million dollar houses on the coast. Kieran Jane, you know, your thoughts on the, the, the social displacement that can happen as people sort of move away from the coast into, you know, we kind of reshuffle the deck in terms of where is desirable to live. Yeah, absolutely. Um 
you're talking about a future state. I'm thinking about the social displacement that's happening today, right? We're, we're battling yeah. uh, rising sea levels and rising housing prices that's in the Bay big, Area. Yeah, more, more immediate concern. Exactly. Um, so, you know, I think it's it's going to have to be tackling our, our kind of zoning laws and some of our land use decisions that we've made in, in terms of density, um, where we're building, uh, where are we defining our sea level rise vulnerability zone? And if it's, you know, a retreat or adapt, what does that mean for future building? And knowing, you know, the Bay Area, for example, is going to increase in population by 30% by the year 2040, you know, thinking about where are we going to house everybody? These are are issues that we need to think about today in addition to uh, rising sea level. Well, Travis, one of the biggest solutions to to reduce uh, rising temperatures and carbon emissions is to have greater urban density. Mm-hmm. If people, because people who live in cities have lower carbon footprints, they use fewer services, they don't drive as much, et cetera. So, urban density and infill is is a solution. How's that going to fit with defending what John said earlier? Most cities are on the coast. Mm-hmm. They need to be more dense, and they need to live with a different relationship with water. How's that all? Oh, and throw in autonomous cars. How's that all going to come together? Well, here again, I think we're going to have to find a new way of designing that density. Uh, there are a lot of us that believe that we should be looking at the immediate shoreline, not as a place to retreat from, but as a place to use with the understanding that we're going to get to use it for a limited period of time. And that then uh, we're going to either recycle those buildings or move them or jack them up or do something with them. Uh, There's a famous scientist at Columbia, Klaus Jacobs, says we have to come up with nomadic infrastructure because it's the infrastructure underneath all of this. Uh, And there's a lot of work being done. Uh, Dr. Edward Church here at Berkeley uh, was talking about using microgrids so that we instead of having a massive infrastructure, it's all decentralized so that we can move this new type of density. And one of the natural instincts for people who do live along uh, the waterfront, if you have private property, is to, is to defend yourself, defend your family, put up a seawall. Mm-hmm. Well, Travis, tell us what that does, the impact of people who do, it's called coastal armoring. Let's put up a seawall and beat, concrete will hold Mother Nature back. Well, the, the, the simple answer is that along the open ocean coast, the way sea level rise will manifest itself will be through more erosion. And if you stop that erosion in front of your property, that is where the sand comes from that is on the beach. So if you stop that sand from going out onto the beach, you're going to end up actually making the problem worse, not just for you, but especially for your neighbors. Explain also, Will Travis, if someone lives on a hill in Boston or San Francisco or Seattle, because uh, the first thing people do when they look at sea level rise maps, they look for their house. Mm-hmm. Ah, I'm, on a, I'm, a, I'm not on it. I'm okay. Is that true? Well, only if they don't drink water, flush their toilet, or go to work, or take their kids to school, or anything like that. Because we realize you have a, a massive interrelated system. And uh, you're, you're absolutely right. People do look at, where's, where's my house? I'm okay. And you aren't. You aren't. You're listening to a conversation about cities, sea level rise, and moving to higher ground. This is Climate One. You can check out our podcast at our website, climateone.org. Greg Dalton will be back with his guests in just a moment. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about rising seas and coastlines on the move with John Englander, author of High Tide on Main Street, 
rising sea level, and the coming coastal crisis. Kieran Jane, Chief Operating Officer of the startup Neighborly, and Will Travis, former Executive Director of the Bay Conservation and Development Commission. Here's Greg. Kieran Jane, you know, we're talking about these things that are slow moving, far away, but in, in a lot of urban America, there's more immediate concerns about safety, jobs, health, that sort of thing. So how does something like this get traction in a city government or even mainstream news media? I mean, I've talked to journalists like, yeah, okay, sees, you know, it's not, it's, it's not a sexy, dramatic story, or is it a, an issue that's going to get a mayor elected? Right. And I think, you know, we've talked about this a lot with many community organizations during my time as um, a CRO and putting it kind of in people terms. Right. We tend to talk about the environment and mm -hmm. kind of rising water and these abstract um, type of uh, situations. But when you go down, you know, to the community level and say, OK, well, when this king tide hits, what will that look like when we layer on a legal dumping or some other kind of city challenge that is really facing our electorate today? How will that impact? impact them commute to work to school I think putting it in those terms um, you know uh, makes people respond more but it's a really great question because we're obviously having this conversation today in this room yet it is not part of a kind of a global conversation um, right now Will Travis, San Francisco, you know, iconic downtown, you know, part of Silicon Valley, an extension of Silicon Valley, you know, economic engine of the country, the world. Mm -hmm needs to spend $5 billion with a B to replace a, a seawall that protects the headquarters of Salesforce and, and other companies. Voters will be asked to approve that, and yet no one can really say how high that seawall should be for the future. So how does that play out? That's just one example of what needs to happen to spend a lot of money to protect what we already have. We don't get anything new for that. That's right, and this gets back to the question about how high the water will get. Uh, I'm going to let you all in on a, a secret if you want to get rich. Get a whole bunch of experts on sea level rise together and ask all of them to tell you exactly how high the water will be at a particular date in the future, and then bet against all of them. You'll make a lot of money. Nobody knows, and nobody can know. So what we need to do is find a way of designing and building so that it doesn't matter. But you know, actually here in San Francisco, you've got a great test tube for this. We know what an earthquake was like. You know there's gonna be another one. You don't have to know when it's gonna happen and where the epicenter will be and what the magnitude's gonna be. You design for a fairly you know, substantial earthquake. We design for hurricanes, not for the average hurricane. We design for the worst case hurricane. Mm -hmm. For sea level, we've really got a great opportunity. It's going to rise. The planet's already a degree and a half warmer. We're trying to keep it to another degree or two warmer, but ice is gonna melt. The sea is going to rise. It's not gonna hit one place, it's gonna hit every place in the coast and up tidal rivers like Sacramento or Hartford, not just on the, on the shoreline. So the truth is once we get our heads around that, we're gonna realize there's a safety margin here. If we build it three feet higher or six feet higher, six feet's gonna be better than three feet. We don't have to do it all at once, but we've got to realize this is to some degree inevitable, but slow. And I think there is an opportunity there because we don't have to know when it's going to happen. And we accept that with mudslides, avalanches, earthquakes, and tsunamis, yet we still design for them. But those are one-time events, John. That's right. What we need to do is design buildings for some credible amount of sea level rise, and then see if the design is still resilient if you add another five feet. And you can incorporate those reasonable measures into buildings so that you can allow the first 
story or two to be abandoned. Over Absolutely time. true. But that's what does that matter if you can't get to the building because the sidewalks are 10 feet below water. So this whole cycle is something that's very challenging from a design perspective. It's very challenging from a governance and a finance and an insurance perspective, but we'll get through it. If you're just joining us, we're talking about uh, sea level rise and other uh, issues at Climate One with Will Travis, former California state regulator, uh, John Englander, author of High Tide on Main Street, and Karen Jane, uh, with Neighborly, former Chief Resilience Officer of the City of Oakland, California. I'm Greg Dalton. We're gonna go to your audience question. Welcome. Appreciating that, I think the number is 212 feet of ocean rise if the Antarctic and Greenland both melt if all uh, the beyond melt. the current 30 feet. And appreciating that they've just discovered this last August the largest volcanic uh, collection of 91 volcanoes under the Antarctic right now. Um, what can those who are in the media communicating and creating messages, not just for the administrators and the politicians, but for the mass audience, what kind of messages can we give the world that won't send everybody jumping off of the cliff? Yeah, this is a real how to do that, John English, without being a downer. So it's a great question. And um, we can think about catastrophe, an asteroid hitting the planet or Yellowstone blowing up and you know extinguishing most life. We can think about these worst case uh, disaster movie scenarios. And we shouldn't do that because if you take the worst case scenarios, whether it be volcanoes under Antarctica, which we don't know whether they're going to last for a thousand years or not, is the truth. But the fact is there's a really simple equation that the amount of ice on land, which is 98% in Greenland and Antarctica, is, if it all melts, will raise sea level over 200 feet, 212 feet is best estimate. And it's happening. And it doesn't matter what we do in the short term. We can slow it, hopefully, in the longer term by the better energy policies. But we need to wake up to this reality that sea level, which we thought was a flat line and therefore determined the shoreline, that those two lines are going to change. And there is no question about it. Even if the world went 100% solar energy today, never burned another lump of coal or barrel of oil, we're still going to get sea level rise because the oceans have already been warmed. And even adhering to the best plans from the Paris Climate Agreement, we're allowing for another degree or two of warming. So the fact is, we have to wake up to this new world reality. After 5,000 years of sea level stability, it's changing. We don't need to discuss the super disaster case any more than an asteroid coming here and you know, wiping us out or uh, various other things that could be just these terrible disasters, one in a thousand chances. That's not the problem. It's just the planet's a degree or two warmer, and there will be less ice and higher sea level. There's an excellent book on climate change communication called uh, uh, Don't Even Think About It by George Marshall, a British journalist, and he cites a researcher in there with the acronym PAIN. Getting through to people about climate needs to be personal, abrupt, immoral, and now. Yeah. Hmm. Personal, abrupt, immoral, and now. Sea level rise meets none of those criteria. It is slow. It is not immoral. We don't know who's causing it. Uh, it's not abrupt. Uh, it doesn't really affect me. So it's a, it's a real communication challenge. Mm -hmm. Well, here's where it goes in between, actually. And I'm glad you, from the questioner to, to you just put things in perspective for me. We can't get 10 feet of sea level rise next week. That's not possible. Mm -hmm. Like you can get a tsunami or you can get a terrible coastal storm or something like that. So totally different time scale and magnitude. But the, we do know from Jakobshaven Glacier in Greenland, which could add a foot and a half of sea level rise, to the six Pine Island glaciers, very specific in Antarctic that we're monitoring, 
those six glaciers are going to slide into the sea at some point, and they hold 10 feet of sea level rise. Mm -hmm. We just don't know when they're going to slide into the ocean. So in most of the scientific journals, I kind of put a footnote. They say, well, unknown. But the fact is, it could happen in 53 years or 153 years. We'll see. Partly it depends on how warm the climate gets. So there's where you have an abrupt, a relatively abrupt event. But even in the worst case real scenario, we're probably looking at, I don't know, a couple of feet a decade, maybe five feet, which would be a disaster. But not like we imagine it like the, you know, the disaster films and the, you know, or the, the floodgates burst and there's suddenly 200 feet of uh, sea level rise and San Andreas, I think, was the movie or something like that. So the messaging, you know, how do you talk about this without bumming people out? Convey the urgency without bumming people out. Karen Jane? Use it as an opportunity to say we now can rethink our systems of governance and finance around this organizing principle. We know that this known unknown is going to happen. Um, and what do we want to do about it? How do we you know, use it as a, an opportunity to rethink the way we design our cities um, so we can live with nature and the built environment? We had a, a slogan that a community organization came up with, um, how wet will you get? You know, just really bringing it down to the individual level. It needs to be personal. What does it mean for me? Let's go to our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Uh, actually, this is a good segue for um, my question about what we um, can do in terms of policy. So you have in the Obama administration um, the idea that if a disaster strikes, in order to be able to rebuild, I believe it was an executive order that you have to rebuild, keeping the new levels of uh, safety and demands in mind. And then, of course, recently, um, our current president, who will name I will not say, um, is uh, of the mind that we didn't need that anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wonder a few things. Can we even, do we even really care about that? You hear about things like the global parliament of cities. Are really cities and, and local communities going to take this on and work these things out and sort of ignore what prevails at the, at the um, global or um, larger levels? and just solve things locally. And um, the other thing is, is that do we have a right to sue? Do we have a right to make a legal stance against arbitrary, irrational decisions like the, um, the president made? Who'd like to tackle that, Karen oh, Jane? Sure, absolutely. Um, I, I think cities already um, are taking on that, this global challenge at the local level, right? And I think the um, COP21, the Paris Agreement, was a, was a great um, kind of watermark, seeing all these mayors from around the world come together and say, we are going to tackle this at the city level. And you've now seen it with the change of the federal, um, you know, Jerry Brown, uh, Governor Brown, and uh, Mayor Bloomberg were at COP23 talking about the U.S.'s... That's um, the, the U.N. Climate Summit. Exactly. Um, talking about how the U.S. was going to meet their uh, climate obligations. Uh, so I think that cities have already um, been part of, of the conversation and will continue to be. And that again brings us back to 100 resilient cities, right? There's, there's a scale at which I think we can make some real change. Um, and I, I really do believe it's at the local level. Will Travis? California isn't taking a leadership role in climate necessarily because of good politics. It's because it's good business. That's what the difference is in California. Uh, there is no executive order that the president can write that requires us to be stupid. And we choose not to be. California is making an awful lot of money over, out of climate change. We've realized in making business decisions that you can't ignore the reality. 
climate always gets to bat last. It's better to have climate on our team than on the other team. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Um, you mentioned how government approval is part of the process to get these resilient projects made. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the permitting process and how it is currently really difficult to restore wetland or raise a levy because all of the different permits that you need from state and um, federal agencies. And if you have any suggestions of how to streamline this permitting process to help these resilient designs actually be implemented in a timely manner. Will Travis, bureaucratic uh, red tapes in the way of doing the kind of things we need to do. Well, uh, was it Winston Churchill said democracy is the worst form of government that there is except for all the rest. Uh, a benevolent dictatorship is very efficient so long as I'm the benevolent dictator. Uh, we have a complex process because it was set up to protect the environment the way it was. And I think, here again, we're going to have to change all these laws. In some cases, what we're trying to do is protect endangered species that are doomed by climate change. And needing a recognition that that's going to happen, how do we expedite changing and approving the sorts of things that will provide a resilient environment for those species that maybe aren't here now but will be moving here? We have to wrap up. I want to ask, uh, starting with Kieran Jane, what gives you hope? You know, dealing with these sort of dark things all the time, how do you keep going and how do you talk to other people who don't like say, okay, Kieran, I see you come and kind of go the other way? Because <laughs> bringing transparency and efficiency to a $3.8 trillion market to help make these projects um, a reality. So you're going to fund the solutions. John Englander, what gives you hope and keeps you going when you think? Uh, uh, we're facing some long odds here. We don't have a choice. The sea's going to rise. The ice is going to melt for quite a while. We should do the right thing to slow it. But the fact is, sooner or later, we're going to wake up to the reality that the water's around our ankles and heading higher. And this isn't an optional adaptation. We will figure this out. It's either going to be done in chaos and catastrophic uh, economic collapse, or it's going to be done with good planning. And I just hope that the sooner we uh, educate people, that's separate from the energy issue and separate from the other climate impacts, the sooner we'll wake up and begin um, to rise with the tide. Before we jump, uh, I want to ask John, uh, you were evacuating with your family from uh, Hurricane Irma barreling down on Florida. And, and you uh, tell us about that, that road trip and who you were listening to. It's really funny. We, we drove about 200 miles north because we thought the storm was going to hit us in uh, South Florida where I lived. And uh, I heard Climate One on the radio. And it was the first time I'd heard it on the radio on NPR. So it was great. So you're racing away from this extreme weather event, listening to Climate One about more climate. Yeah. Okay. Love Absolutely. it. Okay. Will Travis, what keeps you going and gives you hope in, in talking to other people? The most difficult job that planners, urban planners have isn't looking at the data and figuring out what to do. That's the easy part. The hardest thing is to look at something that's a problem now and is going to be a crisis in the future and dragging that crisis back into the present and forcing elected officials to deal with it during their term of office. Climate change is a great story. You can drag that sucker back because it's big and flashing and we got a lot of help from some great journalists. And that's who I think we should be celebrating. Greg Dalton has been talking about cities, sea level rise, and coastlines on the move. 
with John Englander, author of High Tide on Main Street, Rising Sea Level and the Coming Coastal Crisis. Kieran Jane, Chief Operating Officer of the Startup Neighborly and former Chief Resilience Officer of the City of Oakland, California. And Will Travis, former Executive Director of the Bay Conservation and Development Commission. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Please join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel is our producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich are the editors. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.